I started doing it in my apartment because I didn't even want to go into a gym because I had no self-confidence, especially when it came to working out. And so I was doing it in my apartment for a few weeks consecutively. She had an app at the, she still has an app, but that's what I was following at the time. And I remember like, I couldn't do like five consecutive squats. And then there were these like straight leg, what were they straight leg sit-ups or something. I think I remember very vividly the moment where I was doing it in like the third or fourth week on my bedroom floor, this tiny bedroom in the apartment that I was living in at that time. And I realized that I could do all 20 of them like easily. And I remember the confidence that came with that. And that early year, especially of doing that, once I did finally get the confidence to go into the gym and do it, it totally translated into other aspects of my life. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest on the show is Arielle Laurie. You might recognize her from her hit podcast, The Blonde Files, or from her popular Instagram page, where she shares mouthwatering recipes as well as incredible health and wellness tips. But what really inspires me about Arielle is her recovery journey. After nearly losing her battle with addiction, Arielle decided to turn her life around by relentlessly pursuing health and happiness and by sharing what she learned along the way. Arielle just recently celebrated seven years of sobriety this past February. I am sure you are anxious to learn more about Arielle's rise to success, but you will have to listen to the episode to hear the full story. But what I will say now is that her addictions led her to being arrested for a DUI, she had multiple grandma seizures, and she ended up blacking out periodically for several months before finally getting sober. Ariel opens up in detail about what led her down that destructive path, and more importantly, she shares her comeback story. We will also discuss how meditation, fitness, and community have helped her with her sobriety and how she currently manages her anxiety in a way that is healthy and supports her recovery. So I'm so excited for you all to hear this conversation. So let's get this thing going and welcome Arielle Laurie to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Arielle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I know I purposely did not look at your Instagram page shortly before this because I didn't want to get hungry. Your recipes (laughs) look so good. How long have you been cooking for? I've been cooking since I was younger. In fact, one of my earliest memories ever was of my dad teaching me how to make scrambled eggs. Um, My dad was always the cook in the house. And so just from a young age, I was coming up with recipes and all of that. And it became a big part of my life again in the last like seven years. So Yeah, that's awesome. And I know you recently just hit seven years in recovery. Congratulations Mm -hmm. on that. Thank you. And Y'all definitely want to go check out her Instagram page because uh, she's a role model for all things health, wellness, recovery, and she's a great cook. She posts some amazing recipes for both the savory and the sweet. But with all that said, you know, today, you know, Ariel, you host an amazing podcast called The Blonde Files. It's highly popular. Like I said a minute ago, you're like a role model for all things health and wellness. But it wasn't long ago that 
you almost died from, from the depths of addiction. You had a grandma seizure when your parents showed up, went to the hospital, you blacked out for a few months prior to that and nearly lost your life. And before we talk about how you went from there to where you are now, I want to kind of go back a little bit because it's interesting when you think about how an addict grows up, a lot of times you'll hear, well, there was an alcoholic in the family or somebody was abusive or parents got divorced or just something happened that triggered the downfall. And for you, I know your dad was a doctor. Your mom was a stay-at-home mom. You had the family unit there. They were very loving parents. You went to a private school. There was no history of addiction. So what do you think it was, like looking back now, that got the ball rolling for you down that path? Well, thank you for getting my story in like that so concisely, first of all. (laughs) I feel like you just did what takes me like 20 minutes in other interviews, so appreciate that. But, you know, when I do look back on my life, and I have said this in other interviews, I can recognize from a young age that I was looking for something outside of myself to make me feel better inside. And that was like a pattern that continued through my life. I can still get caught up in it so easily, you know, whether it's food or shopping or whatever it is. Um, But I was really looking for something external to make me feel okay inside. So when I was really young, I can remember getting in like knockdown drag out fights with my with my parents about getting like the latest bell bottoms at limited to you know when I was in like fourth grade things that are so inconsequential but that I needed at like such a primal level and I didn't know at the time that I didn't feel okay um, and that I was looking for something to kind of self-medicate with but it was a pattern and then when I got older it was like I needed this car and I needed whatever it was outside thing and And it wasn't just like a want. I mean, it was, I'm talking like a primal level. And then that turned into like relationship stuff when I was in high school, you know, I got into a relationship with a guy and it was very toxic and he kind of filled that void for me. And then when things got bad with him, that's when I found drugs and alcohol. And so, you know, I, I feel like I had just kind of this, this emptiness inside me, if that makes sense, from a really young age. And I didn't know how to feel okay without something outside of myself. And, you know, as a result of that too, on the side, like I just felt very uncomfortable my whole life until I found drugs and alcohol. And it was like in an instant, I felt comfortable. Yeah. I've heard you say, once you took that first sip, once you took that first line, you felt this, this monkey come off your back that you could be at peace with who you are, that you could finally be Ariel. The discomfort was gone. Maybe some anxieties and fears were gone, Uh, but I'm almost wondering, like just listening to you tell your story in, in various podcasts. And even right now, like, do you think you just had it so good growing up that you, you wanted it to be better because you wanted more and more. And when you couldn't really have that more, you just turned to things that were external to kind of fill that. It's interesting. I've never heard it put that way, but we were talking before we started recording about the molecule of more and, and about dopamine. And as soon as you brought that up, I was like, Oh, I can relate to that because <laughs> I have always, you know, I've, I've been chasing like feeling my absolute best. So, you know, I'm not sure if that was the case for me when I was younger. I think that I just, I think it was just kind of the perfect storm. You know, I am also a very anxious person and I'm very sensitive and, and that runs in my family. You know, my mom is anxious. My, they all deal with their own stuff. Nobody else has dealt with addiction, but they, they have dealt with that stuff. And I think some of that is passed down. 
And so I think I, it was just, I was just ripe, you know, I just, it was like the right combination of things for, for me. So that when I did find alcohol and drugs, it was like, I could just breathe for the first time. Yeah. I'm sure there was, uh, there was this perfect storm. It seems like where if you were already experiencing some sense of, of angst and fear, and then you couldn't get what you wanted, whether it was the jeans or a car, or I'm just, you know, making some other stuff up, whatever it was, you're like, maybe, maybe they don't love me or maybe inside you're like, am I not good enough? Or am I ever going to be able to get anything else other than what I have now? And then you end up using, I guess, love at first to fill that void. And then I'm sure that relationship, just from what I've heard you say, wasn't a great relationship. So that I'm sure that messed with your identity and who you were and anxiety and fear and discomfort and all those things. And then you meet alcohol, which is a major depressive, right? And brings you down and you're like, wow, like I can feel like the person that I want to be. I don't have to worry about being in a healthy relationship. I don't have to worry if I'm going to have success, all these things. And then what happens? You end up not wanting more alcohol, but you want more of that feeling. So you have to drink Mm -hmm. more and more and more, and then you just start chasing random things. So you have your first drink of alcohol. I think you said you were like, what, 16, 17 years old? Somewhere around there, yeah. And then where does the alcohol take you? The alcohol took me to, well, where you said, you know, having a grand mal seizure, having many grand mal seizures. But, you know, it started out socially, like it did with a lot of people in high school and around that age. But I did have consequences from the beginning. So you hear people talk about like it was fun and then it was fun with problems and then it was just problems. For me, it was like fun with problems from the beginning. And I did end up getting a DUI for the first time when I was about 20. At that point, I had been also heavily into cocaine. And, you know, I just found that like the alcohol brought me down, but then I was, I would black out. I was a blackout drinker and I didn't want to blackout. So then I found Coke, like, oh, I could do that and drink and, you know, and then all the things that come with that. Then I need the pills to bring me down. And so it was a pretty, I was on a pretty fast trajectory, you know, into like the harder stuff. And so I went to rehab for the first time when I was 20 and I had dropped out of college at that point. And what followed was really just like eight years of real darkness I just, you know, people from the outside would look at it probably as like a failure to launch. You know, I just couldn't seem to like live up to my potential. And I knew that inside. And so I felt so much shame and I saw my peers going on to, you know, graduate college and go to grad school and get jobs and all of that. And so instead of admitting that I had a problem, I chose defiance, right? So I was choosing this life. I was choosing to, to take the, you know, the road less traveled and kind of choose my own path. And so I would get jobs and then I couldn't hold a job and I would take some classes and try to get back into school. And I couldn't stay in school because the, the real priority in my life was that feeling. Like you talked about before, once I found alcohol and found that feeling and the voice in my head quieted and I felt comfortable, um, I really needed that. And I had no coping skills to deal with the shame that I had been feeling about, you know, my peers, passing me by and the shame with the little micro traumas that we acquire along the way throughout our addiction. And so I just really was numbing out and I would go to treatment every couple of years. Always say like I'm a rock bottom person and especially with drugs and alcohol. I mean, that was my medicine. It was my coping skill. I didn't know how to deal with life without it. So it really had to bring me to my knees before I was willing to accept help. 
And it's so true because I think we get into these destructive patterns. Like you, you mentioned yours, for example, where you just start drinking socially. And then just for some reason, whether it's because you have anxiety, whether it's because you've experienced some trauma, whether it's because you just weren't comfortable in your own skin or whether it was maybe something genetic, you're like one of the, the few people that just can't do it without getting yourself into trouble. And then what happens, you get into the trouble. So that creates, I'm sure, some some sense of shame, guilt, stress, even more trauma, anxiety. And then on top of that, I'm sure you're asking yourself, well, what's wrong with me? Like, mm-hmm. why can't I be normal like everybody else? You know, if you could call yourself normal, like by getting drunk with with your peers at that age, why can't I be normal and just party and have a good time? And then you try to deal with that. Like for me, for example, one of the things that I relate to in that was I started getting really bad panic attacks when I started smoking weed. This, and this is something that my, my friends and I had done for years. And then all of a sudden, I think just because, from a combination of just stacking more bad habits, experimenting with other drugs, just going down a path that I know I didn't really want to be going down, I ended up not being able to smoke weed without getting a panic attack. Like literally would have to pull my car over, have to have my friends drive. And I would say, what's wrong with me? How come all of my other friends can smoke weed without getting a panic attack. And here I am in the hospital twice for thinking I was having a heart attack. Here I am having to pull my car over literally for having a panic attack. And this is back then, this is when I was, I think I was probably 18, 19 back then. And nobody really talked about things like this. So I didn't even know what a panic attack was until I went to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so I totally relate to what you're saying and I understand how you feel. and, And I felt that way before. And so I think, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense that you went down the destructive path that you did, because I think at, at that age, it's really hard to cope and say, you know what, I'm going to make a better decision and just stop. It's more like I need to win and I need to be able to do what I can to keep up and stay in that same friend group. So I know it, it started with you drinking socially. You get a DUI at age 20, you go down to Florida, you go to rehab and you just, you end up getting out, carrying on with more, self-destructive behavior. And then where does that take you? I know you got to a point where literally you, you couldn't like get up, I think without drinking or doing drugs. It wasn't like you were just a social drinker who uh, got yourself into trouble. You were now like a full-blown alcoholic slash addict whose life was spinning out of control. Yeah. I got to that point pretty quickly. So when I went to my first rehab at 20, I really felt like I was just doing what my friends were doing and I just happened to get caught. Um, And I was in treatment with people who were like full-blown addicts and alcoholics. And it was easy to separate myself from them. You know, on the one hand, I did feel, I kind of felt like I'd come home. I was around people where I could be my authentic self and not have shame. And I could talk about these things that I was experiencing without shame. And so I got a little taste of that, but I was just like, so I had only been drinking and using for a couple of years. So I was just not ready to stop. And, you know, I believe that alcoholism addiction is a progressive terminal disease in most cases. Um, and my disease really did progress. So every time I would try to get sober, um, I would pick up right where I left off when I started again. So after that first rehab, at that point I was kind of more binge drinking, binge partying. Then I became like a daily drinker. And then I went to rehab again. And that time I blamed love addiction. And I was like, no, the boyfriend is the problem. And everyone was like, you know what? Yeah, I think you're right. Cause we're so manipulative. Right. <laughs> and, uh, And then, you know, I kind of upped the ante when I got out of there. And so by my mid-20s, yeah, I was a daily drinker. I would drink in the morning. 
um, because I would get the shakes. I would drink throughout the day. And I was kind of playing chemist where at that point I was like, okay, I'm going to wake up and I know I'm going to get the shakes and I don't want to go into withdrawal. So I'm going to have like a glass of wine or like a swig of wine from the bottle. Let's be real. And then I'm going to take an Adderall. And then once the Adderall kicks in, then I'll take a little piece of a Xanax to bring me down a little bit so that I'm not too speedy. And then I'm going to drink some more. And then at night I'm going to get some blow. I mean, it was just like insanity, as you know, and my whole life was dictated by when I was going to get to drink next, when I was going to take, you know, whatever, um, just a complete prisoner of drugs and alcohol and having gone to rehabs and detoxes enough. I knew that I, that physically I was in danger because I knew what happens when you're on benzos and you're on alcohol, you know, those are the most dangerous withdrawals, not necessarily the most uncomfortable, although it's pretty effing terrible you know, especially for somebody with anxiety, like I can still feel it talking about it. I'm like, ugh, like it's, you know, just that crawling out of your skin feeling the worst, the worst it's, it was brutal. Um, and I knew, I knew that I was pretty screwed. You know, I was like, I know that I can't quit this myself. And, and I wanted to, you know, and that was another thing that really fed the shame is like waking up and being like, okay, I'm not going to drink today. Maybe I would still take a Xanax because I knew I, I would withdraw a little But, um, you know, I'm not going to drink today and I'm going to taper off the Xanax and I'm going to do it. And like, and I meant it, you know, I was, and I really, for whatever reason, by three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm pulling into the liquor store and buying, you know, wine or vodka or whatever it was. I didn't really care. Um, and, and so that was like really baffling and really shameful to me as well, because I was in this situation where I, I knew, I had to stop. I wanted to stop, but I also knew that I couldn't really stop and I didn't want to ask for help. And so that's when my life really took a turn and I just kind of gave up and my boyfriend moved out and you kind of referenced this. I was kind of blacked out for a few months. I had a neighbor who was a drug dealer who was uh, feeding me God knows what, you know, I I can't, it's hard to speak for myself at the time because I really don't remember, but I don't, I don't remember at any point really wanting to die. I just didn't know what to do. And I just kind of gave up. And so, you know, at that point I was like having seizures and just drinking until I passed out and coming to, and then drinking some more, taking something and passing out and coming to. And that's what I did for a few months until my family finally intervened. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And it's amazing that you're still alive after just listening to all what you were putting in your system. (laughs) Like I thought it was bad enough that I was doing like Coke and Oxy at the same time, but you're like alcohol, Xanax, Coke, Adderall. I'm like, wow, like you're lucky to be alive daily. I mean, I, yeah. I went to Miami and like you, people would just give me anything and I would snort it. I did meth by accident, <laughs> which turned into like a whole, I don't even know how many days bender, but I was like, I didn't care, you know? And I, I laugh about it now. Cause I'm like, I won't eat gluten, but I would literally like put anything up my nose that you would give me wait, back. Wait, back then you wouldn't eat gluten. No, I'm saying now I won't oh, eat gluten, okay. but like back, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's oh, like yeah, just, yeah. it's like, wow, real 180. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and that's, that's what I love. That's what, why I like sharing <laughs> stories like this is because they, somebody sees your Instagram profile maybe they see some photos of you or they listen to your podcast and like, there's no way, but it can mm-hmm. happen to anyone. There's a few things I want to point out is number one is it's not like you ever thought you were going to get to that point from what I heard you mm-hmm. say. It's like you started off just a typical person, casually drinking, drinking socially with your friends. And then you realize, huh, this is actually making me feel better. And then that progresses. And then you reach a point where it's starting to have 
some negative side effects in your life. So instead of actually dealing with it, because I think maybe you didn't have the confidence or you just didn't want to stop. Maybe you're at that age. You're like, you know, I'm just supposed to, I'm supposed to be having fun at this age. Cause that's hard too. When you're at that age, you're like, you know, I'm just, this is the age where you're supposed to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then that progresses and then you create more havoc in your life. And then it just creates these bad habits. And sure enough, you're like, how did I even get here? Like, where'd this, mm-hmm. where'd this all come from? And I also think one of something that also, I think gets said, I don't think it gets said a lot, but people are like, do you, do addicts ever really want to stop? And I think, of course, like, I don't think anybody who's in those, in that state is happy. They're miserable. Mm-hmm. And I think it gets to a point where there's a time, I think when you're doing drugs and alcohol, where you do it and like, man, this is really fun. This is feeling good. I'm having, I'm happy. And then you hit that wall and it's like, all right, now I have to do this stuff just to, so I can feel happy about myself mm-hmm. or to, um, reduce the shame or to just cover up all the sadness I'm experiencing in my life to keep me alive. Because I think sometimes what happens is you hit that point of no return almost, and you end up having to play catch up with all the drugs and alcohol just to get Mm -hmm. to like baseline, which I think is tough for a lot of people. I couldn't go to, I lived like a few blocks away from a Whole Foods in West Hollywood before I got sober. I didn't even have to drive there. I could walk there. And I would have to do so much to get myself to that baseline, to be in a place where I felt like I could be in public and not be like the shaking weirdo. (laughs) Um, And like, you know, I can laugh about it now, but at the time I did not want to be doing that. And I try to emphasize that whenever I talk about this, because I think there is still kind of this, I mean, I, I, don't think I know that addiction is still like very stigmatized. And a lot of people think that it's, you know, a moral choice. Unfortunately, Um, I did not want to be doing that. And like I said, I would wake up in the morning and be like, today is the day, you know, like I knew that it was bad. Um, And I really wanted to stop and I really wanted to have a life and I just couldn't do it. Right. So like looking back, I mean, obviously it seems like you're the type of person that appreciates everything that's happened in your past because it's made you who you are today. And you have Mm -hmm. this mentality that things happen for you, but like looking back, if say like, if you had, was there certain things that if you could have had them at some point in your addiction, you think you may have gotten into recovery sooner? Like maybe if you had some sense of intervention with a therapist, you really trusted, you were in a healthy relationship, like something like that. I mean, I always hoped along the way, I felt like if I got the right relationship, if I got a stable job that I loved, if I went back to school, if, 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 Mm. then I wouldn't be an alcoholic or an an addict. Um, and as we know, like that usually doesn't fix it for some people it does, right? but, um, or, or it galvanizes them to go seek treatment finally. Um, so that's not unusual, but for me, I really had to be kind of beaten into submission. You know, I, along the way, like I went to really good rehabs, my parents, like God love them. They were, they just wanted to believe the best. So every time they were like, this is going to be it. And I would go into it saying, okay, this is going to be it, you know? And so they would send me to these places. And this whole time I was in therapy and I did have a therapist in Florida who was amazing. And now we're like Facebook friends and he's always like so happy for me. And he actually went above and beyond. Like I was in an abusive relationship at that time and I didn't show up for my session. And he knew that like, things were not good. Um, and he was sober himself and he like broke ethical codes and came over to my house because he knew that something was wrong. And he actually got me into the hospital after I'd been like beaten up. And, um, and after that I got sent to another rehab 
based on his suggestion. And, you know, so I had really good people who were really working on my behalf and people that I trusted, but I just wasn't ready till I was ready. Like, you know, back to me being a rock bottom person, like I'm so stubborn that I need to be totally out of options before I'm willing to make any kind of changes, um, or do things that benefit me. I'm still like that even now with seven years sober, you know, I know the things that are really good for me, but sometimes I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, I know it's right. going to make me feel better, but I don't want to, I have to wait till I'm in enough pain. And, you know, so I am really grateful for it because being at that low of, of a rock bottom, it made me willing to kind of go to any lengths to pursue sobriety and figure out what was at the root cause of my issues. And then like now obviously pursue wellness and just like the absolute best life that I can. Yeah. And I definitely want to dive into that because it's a, a passion of mine as well. But I first want to say it's just, you know, I think we create some sense of homeostasis, like this baseline. Mm -hmm. So if we're used to just operating out of pain for most of our lives, I think just subconsciously we will almost reinvent that automatically in our life, even when we don't need to experience pain. Like I remember for me, I, I hit a point in my recovery where I was always stressed out. I was always anxious, but I had no reason to be anxious. Like there was nothing going on in my life that would have made me anxious. Like my job was good. My health was great. I wasn't, you know, abusing drugs. I was fit, like all these things. And my therapist said, she said, like, how did you grow up? And I was like, oh, there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of chaos in my childhood. And she said, well, I think this is your, your norm. This is what you're used to. So you're going to create stress even um, when it's not there because that's what your body's used to. And it's funny before we were recording, I like went to Starbucks to get a matcha latte. Cause I've been trying to switch it up instead of getting coffee in the afternoons, getting matcha lattes. Cause it has less caffeine <laughs> and I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, I'm ready to go for the interview, but I'm, I'm like not giving myself like a lot of grace period. I'm like, why do you do this? And I was thinking to myself, <laughs> I was like, I think subconsciously I have to be like at that sh stressed or a little yeah. anxious to like live. And I think it's like, and I was, and honestly, I was literally just thinking about this um, before we recorded. And so when you say that, like even now, how you said some of these patterns still come up in your day-to-day -day life. But I think what's changed is you have more awareness around it. I have more awareness around it and you don't mm -hmm. respond by destructive patterns. It's more like, okay, I get this. Maybe I'll work on it. I'll do something different the next time. And you just kind of move through that instead of freaking out about it and then turning to a substance because you're uncomfortable with that feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the awareness is the most important part because I don't think we're ever going to get like perfect, right. you know, where it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm perfect. Like I never get stressed. I never get anxious. I always feel great. I'm never, I'm always on time, but, but, but whatever. But I think, yeah, being aware of it, that has been the key to everything. So you end up going to Cedar sinai after you have this grandma seizure, um, when your parents show up. And then you end up going to treatment out in what Utah, right? Utah. And what mm -hmm. was the inspiration behind that? There was something <laughs> funny, right? Yeah. The inspiration was Lindsay Lohan, which, <laughs> you know, I can't help but laugh now because yeah, you know, I was, I had been in Cedars for like three or four days. They were trying to stabilize me because I was having seizures and I was in like massive withdrawal. Mm. Um, and I really don't remember the first 30 days of my sobriety very much. But I do remember this moment where my family came in and they were like, you need to go to treatment. And I remember being like, yeah, I do. Like, that's correct. And they said, you can go to Malibu or you can go to Promises, which was in Malibu. And yep. I knew that I didn't want to be in LA. And they said, 
or you could go to um, the Meadows. I had already been there and they were like, or you can go to Cirque. And I remember like at that time, you know, the tabloids and Perez Hilton and those, that was really big. And Lindsay Lohan had been in, in and out of rehab. And I knew for some reason that she went there and I was like, yes, that's where I'm going to go. Yeah. <laughs> and now I look back and I'm like, wow, when that's your, your guiding light, you know, then there's a problem. <laughs> no, yeah, offense but I, no, yeah, I know. But I think <laughs> at least in that moment, it gave you what you needed to get there and, and it happened for the right reasons. Then you get out and then it, it finally gave you a chance to, to stay in recovery for the first time in your life and ultimately saved, saved you. It ultimately I'm sure saved your, your parents, even more grief that they would have experienced had something more drastic happened to you. Mm-hmm. And it gave you a chance now to help other people. So what I want to dive into is I know support groups and treatment played a massive role in your recovery and getting from where you were then to where you are now. But what are a few other things that if you look back, you're like, man, those two things or two, two or three things were pivotal in helping me get through the, the, the raw emotions of recovery, facing my demons, facing the fears, facing all the anxieties that came along with that. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first want to let you know this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. If you're anything like me, you have a lot going on and it can be challenging at times to maintain effective nutritional habits and give your body the nutrients it needs to thrive. This is where Athletic Greens really helps me. Their all-in-one superfood powder is nutrient-packed and is included in my daily smoothie without fail or serves as a quick pick-me-up in between appointments and interviews. Personally, I have noticed that it helps with my digestion, energy, and immune system. One tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. Plus, they are committed to helping people strengthen their immune systems. Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system with everything going on in the world right now. This includes their offer for my listeners. They are offering my audience a free, free one-year supply of vitamin D, which many people are deficient in, yet is crucial for immune system support. And they are also giving away five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. You'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. Simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Doug and join health experts, athletes, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Doug and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Now back to the show. Well, yeah, support groups and, and therapy, those are huge, but I, so this is kind of an extension to that, but community, you know, finding community, whether it's in a support group or just finding people who have been through the same thing, like-minded people, there's so much magic in being able to talk to another person who's been through the same thing. Um, I think anybody who's struggled with addiction to anything, you know, we kind of speak the same language. Mm -hmm our experiences are completely different. I can sit down with another person who's been through it and feel like we've known each other forever. Um, and you know, because shame was such a driving force to the addiction, absolving that was so important. So having friends, having people that I could talk to who were, who had been through the same things, who were going through the same things, who we could kind of navigate it together. I think that having that sense of community is like so, so, so important. Um, when you're recovering from something like that. So that was huge. And meditation, 
I am, I smile when I say meditation. No, t- I, I know you're a t- I know- check out. <laughs> no, I, no, I, 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 I like meditation. I've done it. I, I know you did TM or do mm-hmm. TM. Yeah. I actually tried to do it. It's, just, it's a mm-hmm. whole other story for a whole other day. I mean, nothing bad happened. I just, I tried to do it and then I just got out of it and never went back, but I found some other forms of meditation that have worked mm-hmm. for me along the way. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that TM has the monopoly on meditation, anything that works for you. And I had tried different kinds throughout my sobriety and, you know, I was kind of a dabbler and I would do like the apps and do some guided stuff. And I still like those from time to time, but I just felt like I was a little relaxed after, but I didn't feel like I was really getting a benefit from it. And even just a little relaxed is great, especially for somebody who deals with anxiety. But a lot of people around me had been doing TM and I just started noticing it more. I'm like, Oh, that person, like, I really want what they embody. You know, there's just something different. And I was like, Oh, they do TM. And then like the next person, I'm like, okay, this is a sign. I need to try this. And I'm such a proponent of it because it really TM is transcendental meditation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's twice a day for 20 minutes in silence. I don't do it perfectly. I've only missed a handful of days, at least doing one meditation a day in the years that I've done it. So it really changed my life so profoundly because, you know, back to the awareness, I just, even in sobriety, I think I started doing it when I was a few years sober. I was, I was pretty aware and I was pretty mindful, but we're so distracted. And especially being somebody who I run a business on Instagram and, you know, and a website and being, being a digital person, um, But even if people don't do this, you know, it's just between the emails and the phones and the this and the that, like we can go through our entire day without being in our bodies and without being in our minds, you know, and so without going too much into it, because I don't want people to to glaze over, you know, it really just those 20 minutes of sitting quietly really helped me to see what my mind actually does and see the truth in my life. And also it helped like so, so, so immensely with my anxiety and, and with trauma too. Yeah. I think there's something special about being able to sit with yourself for a period Mm -hmm. of time and just learn how to manage your thoughts, emotions, and just things that go through your head in a period of time and just being comfortable, getting uncomfortable. And when you're meditating and things are going through your mind, being able to just sit there and accept the feelings and let them move through you because then that ha- that helps you in the, in the real world when you end up experiencing anxiety, stress, you're in fight or flight. You're like, okay, I felt these feelings before. I know I can get through them because I think what gets people caught up in full-blown anxiety a lot of times is they almost make the anxiety or stress worse by responding to the feelings mm-hmm. and just not – because in that moment, it's hard to be like, all right, I, I accept these feelings. It's just part of the process. But if you're training your mind to know that, that it is, it becomes a habit and it becomes almost second nature to you for that for that next time where you experience that to be like, all right, I'm going to move through this. I would say like the other thing that I picked up in your story that I think helped you reduce the shame in your journey was fitness. Cause mm-hmm. I know you, uh, you did Kayla's program. I haven't followed her in a few years, so I don't know what she's doing now, but I know back when you were doing it, she was, she was amazing. She, 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 she's done, yeah. a, she did a lot for the fitness industry has done a lot, excuse me, I should say. But I, I remember when you first started the blonde files, Instagram, you didn't post it. You didn't post who you were, right? Like it was kind of hidden. 
Yeah. So I started it. I was like two years sober at the time. And yeah, Kayla, it's seen as BBG. It was huge. And she really did kind of pioneer like the Instagram workout space. This is before obviously quarantine. And like now everybody is an an Instagram trainer. Um, But she was like way ahead of the curve with that. This was in 2016. Um, And, you know, so I felt like I had kind of had the emotional I had, I had my emotional life down, you know, I was, I had worked through a lot of my old stuff and, um, I had kind of rebuilt this life that I was happy with, but I felt still kind of uncomfortable in my body. Um, I had always been active when I was younger and then obviously drugs and alcohol just took precedent. And so when I got sober, I would work with trainers and I would try to like get a consistent workout thing. And I just couldn't find anything that stuck again, like meditation. I kind of need discipline in case you haven't noticed, (laughs) So I like, I need the discipline of TM saying like, sit down twice a day and do it. And I needed like the, you know, the program that Kayla at Cena's had that was like four days a week, you're doing this, you're doing, you know, high intensity strength training and three days a week you're walking. And because I'm a very compliant person by nature. And if you like, give me the rules, at least in sobriety, I'm, I'll follow them. So, yeah. So I started doing her program and I started my Instagram simultaneously and I, I called it the blonde files because I didn't want to show my face. I was posting before pictures of my body and I've always been petite, but I still felt like after going from one end of the spectrum, you know, malnourished and like just skin and bones and tiny to being healthy, I had gone to the other end of the spectrum for me, which was, you know, I just felt uncomfortable and I had other issues like bloating and, um, just didn't feel comfortable in my skin again. So yeah, so I started doing her program and about six months into it, um, I ended up revealing myself and I do air quotes because it was so not a big deal at the time. Nobody knew who I was any, anyway, you know, I had like 2000 followers and, um, but that was what actually launched this whole platform that I have now. That's awesome. Because I, I went back and looked at a lot of your stuff just to see like where you were and then where you are now because I just, as a trainer and somebody who's in the industry and, and how fitness had a big impact in my recovery, I was like, I almost wonder if the more fit you got and the more comfortable you got in your own skin, just through just taking care of yourself and taking care of your health and being confident in who you were just through what fitness naturally does for you, that it helped you kind of pull the mask off, if you will, and say, this is who I really am. My name's Ariel and I'm in recovery and this is my story. Because I think fitness gives you this incredible um, feeling of self-worth that a lot of things can't just because you're, you're just naturally showing yourself that you love it, love your body by the way you're, you're carrying yourself on a daily basis with your working out and you see gains. Not, I'm not talking about like just strength gains, just gains in the way you feel gains mm-hmm. in the way you stand gains in the way you act, your relationships get better. You're able to hold a job because you develop discipline. You're able to be consistent. You're able to do things you never thought you could. You're able to get comfortable being uncomfortable, which is, which is everything in recovery. And you're like, wow, like, I can't believe I'm, I, I'm doing this. Yeah. I remember I started doing it in my apartment because I didn't even want to go into a gym because I had no self-confidence, especially when it came to working out. And so I was doing it in my apartment for a few weeks consecutively. She had an app at the, she still has an app, but that's what I was following at the time. And I remember like, I couldn't do like five consecutive squats. And then there were these like straight leg, what were they straight leg 
sit-ups or something. I think I remember very vividly the moment where I was doing it in like the third or fourth week on my bedroom floor, this tiny bedroom in the apartment that I was living in at that time. And I realized that I could do all 20 of them like easily. And I remember the confidence that came with that. And that early year, especially of doing that, once I did finally get the confidence to go into the gym and do it, it totally translated into other aspects of my life. And I would really bring whatever I was feeling, um, you know, whatever unease and anxieties that I had about whatever was going on in my life, I would bring it into that room because I would work out in this room next to the gym at my apartment complex that I was living in. And her workouts are really hard, like really hard. You should try some. <laughs> so I've heard, I've, heard all of, about, I've heard all about them. A lot of jumping, lots of plyometrics, yeah. lots of burpees, lots of like, just they're tough. Um, and I remember like being nervous going into it, but like kind of nervous, excited. And just that feeling of just such empowerment when I would finish them. So it definitely, definitely kind of changed the trajectory of my life and definitely helped to build confidence in that way. Yeah. Cause I'm sure there's some sense of looking back and being like, wow, like three years ago I was rotting away and mm-hmm. in a different apartment, nearly losing my life and didn't think I was going to live much longer, even though you said you never willingly wanted to die. But I'm sure there was some there, you had some thoughts of like, am I going to make it? Like how much longer am I going to be able to keep this up to now you're actually taking care of yourself and you're doing these hard online workouts and you're seeing like a lot of progress. You're not only seeing progress, you're not opening up about who you truly are on a platform that has a ton of people on it and Instagram. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, I don't remember how many people were on it back then, but it was a lot. I mean, I'm sure it was millions upon millions upon millions of people. And then now you look back and I'm sure there's that same thing. You're like, wow, I can't believe five years ago, I just started this Instagram account. Look where I am now. I have, a, I have several hundred thousand followers. I have a popular and successful podcast. I'm with Dear Media. I'm happily married. I have, you have all these things that you wanted as a kid, but you mm-hmm. had to go through hell and back to get it, which I think sometimes just the way it is, right? Like I think, yeah. unfortunately, some people just have to go through really challenging times. But I think what happens is the bigger the setback, the bigger the comeback, and not only the bigger the comeback, the bigger you can pay it forward to other people mm-hmm. and help other others that are struggling with the same things that you struggled with, whether it was not being comfortable in their own skin or being ashamed of who they were as a kid or not being in a healthy relationship or whatever it was to say, you know what, I've been there and I hear you. And, um, these are the lessons that I've learned. Here's what I wish I would have done differently. Here's some advice. I'm going to, I'm going to be here for you and be that person that I wish I would have had when you were in those moments of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I like the, the greater the setback, the greater the comeback. I mean, it really, I'm so grateful for all of it. And it gave me the, the perspective to know that when I'm going through hard things now, because you know, life is still in session, I can, I can go through hard things and I can appreciate that it's going to help me get to where I need to be. And I can appreciate that. I'm going to look back on whatever it is that I'm going through. That's hard and be grateful for it. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the greater the setback, the greater the comeback can be cliche. I think people, when they hear that, they're like, yeah, okay. But I mean, what other, what other choice do you have if you're going through hard times? Like you can either look at it and say, I'm going to keep going through hard times and my life sucks and woe is me and I'm never going to amount to anything. 
I mean, you know where that gets you. That gets you through darker times. That gets you through more heartbreak, more setbacks, not getting to the place that you want to be where you're truly happy and fulfilled. Or you can say, you know what? Like, I know right now this is a challenge. It sucks. It's hard. It's very painful. But I know that I am going to get through it. And when I get through it, I'm going to be able to share the lessons that I've learned, not only to help myself, but to help other people. And I think there's power in that. Because mm-hmm. I think what happens with people in recovery um, or life, really, when they hit hard times is they, they lose this, this sense of belief in themselves. I think the lack of belief is almost more challenging than the addiction itself, because I think people, they want to stop and they are addicted, but because they don't have the belief that they can stop or that they are either worthy enough or that they're going to be able to get the help they need, they just say, you know what, it's just easier to just fall back in the same old patterns and then their life gets worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. You struggled with, with anxiety a majority of your life. Mm-hmm. And it led you down some self-destructive patterns that nearly cost you your life. Other than, than meditation, like what are some other staples that you have in your toolbox to help you manage your anxiety on a daily basis? So meditation is first and foremost, of course, um, therapy has been huge. If people have that as a resource, um, you and I were talking beforehand about brain spotting. I mean, there are really helpful techniques that you can do with a therapist that can really translate into like everyday life. So cognitive behavioral therapy, that's huge. Exercise is huge for me. I know for myself that if I don't do something in the morning, I'm going to be kind of like a ball of anxiety, ball of tension by the afternoon. So even if it's just going for a walk, just doing something to kind of like get the energy out a little bit, uh, that's really helpful for me. And another thing is natural light in the morning. That's really big because when I was in school last year and just having a business online and as you know, we're all getting up and getting in our emails and getting on our phones. Um, if I do that first thing for whatever reason, I'm going to be anxious throughout the day. So getting outside and getting some natural light is huge. What I eat definitely plays a big role. Finding what works for me. That was in terms of diet, limiting caffeine. So we were talking about matcha. I used to drink tons of coffee all throughout the day and I was anxious all the time. Now I just do a matcha in the morning. So just these kind of little like micro things um, and just kind of being aware, you know, I keep a journal and I'll journal a few gratitudes in the beginning of the day. And then I'll journal at the end of the day and doing just a few things before I go to bed and kind of like taking inventory of my day has been huge because I can see what my triggers are and I can write down what I'm anxious about. And then I can look back and see that, you know, I really had nothing to worry about. And the things that I was fearing turned out to be not big at all. And just bringing awareness to it, I think is so important. Yeah. I think the things that you just mentioned, they're so simple and they pay, they have such huge payoffs. And I think if people could just take maybe it's 90 minutes out of their day, an hour a day to do those things, journal, maybe you have a call with your therapist, exercise for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever time frame you have, um, write down things you're grateful for, write down your fears, write down things at the end of the day, it will pay off so much, right? Because I think if you were to write down the days, and I know I could do this where you're most anxious for me, my things would be lack of sleep, not enough water, too much caffeine, didn't eat well. Like you mentioned also eating, making sure that you're dialed in with your nutrition. 
And then I have some sense of awareness and then you can take action based off of awareness and accepting where you are and saying, okay, like this is what happens when I am not my best. I have high levels of anxiety. So why don't we reattach some different behaviors so that I can feel better throughout the day. But I think what happens is people, they almost go through life just not even paying attention to this stuff. And then mm-hmm. what happens is they get into these destructive behaviors and patterns and they have no idea where they, they came from because they didn't take the time to develop some self, self-awareness to say, okay, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm doing when I'm having these high levels of anxiety. And then it just gets more destructive and destructive. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like what I was talking about before, um, you know, with meditation, not to go back to that one again, yeah. but we are so distracted and it's so easy to go through and not be aware of the things that we're doing to contribute to it and the things that you know, the things that are in our control and the things that aren't, I think that awareness around that is key because then you can make these little changes and those little changes that we were talking about add up. And I think that what happens, especially with something like anxiety, but any kind of like heavy emotional thing is that you, you get to the point where you feel like it's too big. And I know that I got to this point multiple times in my sobriety where I'm like, you know what, the anxiety is like so bad. I really think I need to go on like an SSRI and First of all, there's nothing wrong with medication. I've been on them at different periods and I'm a proponent of it if you need it. But I get myself to that point where that's my solution. And I'm like, just give me the Band-Aid. And then I realized, well, you know what? I'm not meditating and I'm not like getting outside first thing in the morning. And, you know, I'm on my phone like really late at night and I'm only getting like six hours of sleep and my diet is fucked. And I'm not reaching out and being helpful to other people and making it all about myself. You know, it's like, I look at myself and I, I realize how I got myself to that point. So whatever it is to have a little bit of awareness around it is key. So, yeah. And I, and I think it can go the other way too, right? If you have, if you spend all these, all this time in destructive patterns, if you spend two hours a day, just wasting time on social media, getting into fights with your partner, which I mean, will happen naturally. But if, you, if it's day, if it's a daily thing, eating like crap, not exercising, not setting goals, drinking ex- excess amounts of alcohol, doing drugs, like your life's going to get very dark very quickly over time, right? Just from doing mm-hmm. those simple bad habits versus like you said, just having the self- self-awareness to say, okay, like if I'm not on my phone late at night, if I'm not checking my emails first thing in the morning, if I'm getting sunlight, if I'm eating well, if I'm meditating, if I'm working out, if I'm doing this, doing that, like long-term, I'm going to be able to get through the storms of life with ease and not a ton of pain. There's still going to be a little bit of pain when troubles happen because it's just natural, but it's not going to completely destroy me. Last question I have for you is this, is I want you to, to kind of imagine that you're talking to to, to young Ariel, and maybe you're like 21, 22 years old and just in the thick of it and just really struggling and just not knowing if you're going to get through it. Tons of fear, tons of anxiety. What's a few pieces of advice that you're giving to her to help her get through it? Well, I'm asked this question kind of often and I, I usually have some of the same answers. I would tell her like, put down the blow. And I always say that <laughs> <laughs> like kind of as a joke, but also, you know, I just, I, I thought that I had to do these things to fit in. And so the real thing that I would probably want to tell myself, I think what, what happened in my story was that like, I was putting up these facades, you know, and I really couldn't be my authentic self. And because I couldn't be my authentic self, whether that meant like asking for help or just being sober at a younger age, 
I really, I, I had to keep drinking and using to, to like feel comfortable. And so I think I would tell her that it's okay to be yourself, you know, like it sounds so cliche, but like you are enough. I really thought that I had to hide behind these things to fit in at the same time. I know that I wouldn't have listened. <laughs> right. I think that that's so important. Um, I just, I just wasn't ready to hear anything until I was ready. Yeah, you're right. You know, cause I think at that age, like hearing a lot of what you just said is, is really tough to hear. But I think if maybe there's that person that hasn't gotten like maybe to that point where they're just so far down that rabbit hole of addiction that they've lost to, you know, that a lot of people, they lose total sense of reality, self-esteem, consciousness, if you will. And like mm-hmm. who they really are, but they just don't even care anymore. But, you know, I think sometimes there's these people that they're just starting to get on that slippery slope. And maybe right now they're at that point where they're feeling like they're not enough, or they maybe just went through a bad breakup or they, uh, they are watching their friends go to college and they're not, and maybe they're just starting to dabble in some things, but they haven't gotten to that point where they're using it now to like numb a ton of pain mm-hmm. and they're to get back to that baseline. And so I think if anybody's listening to this, to know that if you're experiencing these sensations or feelings of, of feeling less than and not enough, like just to take her advice and just know that like you are, and even though you're not where you want to be right now, doesn't mean you won't get there. Yeah. And I would also add that like your feelings will not kill you. Yeah. Feelings won't kill you. I was petrified of feeling feelings. So anytime I felt anything that was kind of uncomfortable, I was like, I have to numb this out. (laughs) Um, And now I'm like, not to sound so Pollyanna, but like grateful for all of it. I'm grateful for the shitty feelings too. And, um, and I, I wish I knew that, but again, like when you are that age, when you're getting into that stuff, it's so hard to listen, to hear that. Cause I had so many people telling me that I was enough and that, you know, I could do life without all that stuff. And it was just hard to understand, but I would also want to tell her like, your life can be fucking amazing and fucking fun without that stuff. You know, that was so important because I really, I I couldn't picture a life sober. I thought that getting sober would be the worst thing, absolute worst thing in the world, absolute end of my life. And now I look back and I see that, you know, I was really a prisoner of that mindset. Yeah. That's that's so true. That's common for a lot of people. They think without drugs, without alcohol, like what are people going to do? I know for me personally, Mm -hmm. everything I did is well involved drugs. So one Mm -hmm. of the the things that felt so great was when I got out of jail and I, I didn't, I didn't have any drugs in my system. I was like, I want to go to the aquarium. And people were like, what? <laughs> like, I wanted to go to the zoo. Like, I wanted to go to the zoo, like places that I, I hadn't really been able to truly experience, I guess, as I had gotten older without being under the use of something or going to the mall or going to different places where I could just actually be able to like see things, hear things and be aware of what was going on around me instead of just doing it to just do it, like just to do it to have something to do while I was high or whatever. Mm-hmm. which is what we, a lot of us do. And yeah, yeah. Like getting into recovery can, is, is the greatest gift you can give yourself. And I just think yeah. it's also important to remember some of the stuff you said earlier that it's still going to be challenging. Like life still does happen just because you're not using drugs or abusing alcohol anymore. It doesn't mean that life just gets easy. No, you're just not making it even harder by your, just the decisions and choices you're making in response to whatever you're, you're going through. Right. So and I would just invite people to, to know that once you get into recovery, just pick what works for you. You know, whether it's 
community support, therapy, fitness, meditation, health and wellness, you know, spirituality, going to church, whatever it is, just pick whatever works for you. And mm-hmm. if it works, keep doing more of that and then slowly add in other things so that as you grow, you have this toolbox in your life of, of being able to deal with life when it happens so that you don't fall back into the same self-destructive pattern. So Ariel, this has been awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I think people are going to get yeah. a lot out of it. So where can people find out more about you, your podcast, and if they want to follow you on social media? My podcast is The Blonde Files Podcast. That was my anonymous name and <laughs> I'm stuck with it forever. People are like, what does it mean? And you know, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what I'm stuck with. Um, they can find me on Instagram at Ariel Laurie, my name. And from there they can find my website, which is theblondefiles.com. Um, my podcast is also linked there podcast, Instagram. Also I have the blonde files helps, which is organizations that I'm passionate about. And yeah, everyone, everything is linked from my Instagram. Awesome. Well, I'll be sure to link all that in the show notes and you guys, everybody listening to this needs to definitely go check her out, check out the podcast. Um, she interviews some, some amazing people. She does a great job with it and she's promoting a lot of good things to help other people become the best version of themselves, which you all know we are all about on this podcast. And what I'd like you to do just as I, as I always ask is to take a screenshot tag her, tag myself with your biggest takeaway. Maybe it was something that she said about her recovery journey. Maybe it was something that she said when about fitness. Maybe it was something she said with regards to meditation, whatever it was, share your biggest takeaway or something that you're going to apply into your life. Tag us both on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. We, we would love to hear from you. We love feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.